Everybody, welcome back to what are we coming to? It is exploring the Lord of the Rings. That's where we are today. I have to sometimes remind myself what day of the week it is and where I am, but we are in exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 266. And today we continue the council near but not on the knees of Karathras as we continue to, to discuss. I was going to say to decide uh, where to go, but. Um, there's not that much of it. It's more of a um, let us um, you break the news about what happens next to everybody. Um, so uh, we uh, we were we we're beginning to look at that next time. There's some parts of the passage we began last time that we haven't finished, and then uh, uh, we will um, we will we will continue to move forward. Uh, before I um, uh, before we we move on, just a couple updates. First of all. Um, I, I, I was um, thinking about you guys because I was uh, I spent a significant portion of the last 24 hours um, I f almost finishing uh, the next chapter of my Exploring the Lord of the Rings book, um, Volume 1 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's uh, chapter 1.2 that I'm just finishing on that's supposed to release next week uh, in our serial release uh, through the Sigmund University Press. And... Um, it's um, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I was thinking about you guys because I was uh, in this chapter of the book. I was explaining the hobbitry concept, right? I was uh, you know, talking about chapter one. Um, and it was really fun. I, I, I was noticing a whole bunch of things. Of course, of course, I'm still I'm still talking about a long expected party, right? Chapter one of the book. You know that chapter which we like barely touched on uh, in class when we were doing it, and. Um, so it was really neat because there was just there was just a whole bunch of things that I'd never really noticed before, or I had kind of noticed but had never really sort of processed until I um, was uh, was sitting down with it. And anyway, it, it was really cool. Like in particular, I was looking at a sort of a, a, in, in one section of the chapter, I was looking at um, kind of first establishing the concept of hobbitry, what it means, like why how you how they sort of you know use this pattern of indirection to um you know use insults when like what you're really doing is expressing affection and um uh but then i was going back and looking after that looking through not the entire speech bilbo speech farewell speech i mean um line by line but um just going through and looking at some examples of the hobbitry that bilbo indulges in um, and it's interesting because his, um, his, Bilbo's, um, uh, the audience uses a lot of hobbitry too. Um, my, fa my favorite thing, I just, I mean, I mean, seriously, one of my, one of my favorite moments in chapter one is when Bilbo says in his speech, I hope you are all enjoying yourselves as much as I am. And a bunch of them shout, no, like, I, I just, I just love that. I absolutely love that. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, so that was, um, uh, that was, that was really, um, 
I, I was having a lot of fun with that. But I was just noticing this this sort of pattern that Bilbo's hobbitry is kind of off in the speech. You know, like that is there's this mingling between um, what is what seems to be genuine hobbitry in the sense of like. I'm insulting you, but I'm doing it because I love you, right? Like, I'm saying I love you by, like, insulting you. Um, like, that kind of hobbitry. And, but, like, at the same time, like, genuine insult is also mixed in, right? So it's this kind of um, uncomfortable, like, there's a, he's, like, right on the line um, between, like, I'm insulting you because I love you and I'm insulting you because I actually want to insult you. Right. Um, and that he's often doing, like, both of the things at the same time. Anyway, um, it was it just really kind of working through and processing those patterns. I was like coming to see some things that I'd never really seen before. And it was, uh, it was really, it was really fun. But as I said, I was thinking about y'all, especially when we, uh, I was talking about some of the passages that we did discuss. In fact, I cited one of you, um, in this chapter, in one of the footnotes, Kate Neville, I don't know if you're, if Kate's here tonight. Um, but I was citing Kate's awesome observation, which some of you may remember, um, uh, from when she, gave that brilliant reading of the round convex mirror that um, Angelica Took gets uh, as her message uh, from Uncle Bilbo. Um, and uh, anyway, I, I would, you know, which I still think is, and if, if you don't remember that, and like, come on, man, it was only like six years ago, six and a half years ago. But anyway, um, just in case you don't remember what that was, um, Kate's argument was that, of course, like what a convex mirror, what a round convex mirror does is it's not principally designed to distort your face. What it principally does is shows the whole world around you, right? So that you appear in the mirror, but you appear small in the mirror and the whole world surrounding you is big and you can see like all around yourself when you look into a convex mirror. Um, and that that seems to be Bilbo's message. Bilbo's message is not, as I always kind of assumed it was before, um, uh, you know, I was thinking only of like, oh, he's giving her a non-flat mirror, which means her face will be distorted. So like the message is sort of like, hey, you know, your face ain't so shapely as you think. Right. Um, but instead, the message seems to be when you think about what a brown convex mirror actually does, the message seems to be, uh, hey, there's a there's a lot more to look at than just your own face. Maybe, you know, um, don't forget a that there's more than just your face for you to look at. And B, don't forget that you are situated in this wider world, right? And maybe, maybe, uh, maybe think about that, Angelica. Um, but uh, anyway, so it is, um, uh, I, I just, I love that observation. Like it was one of those moments, you know, there've been several in our discussions when, you know, somebody says something and I'm just like, oh man, yeah, like that's, uh, um, that is it. <laughs> like that, that is that is absolutely that is absolutely a convincing explanation. Um, anyhow, so I've just been having a lot of fun uh, uh, writing the next chapter of my book. Um, draft isn't almost isn't it's almost done. We'll be there. We'll be fine. It'll be ready for next week. Um, so anyway, as I say, I've been thinking of you guys. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is that uh, Mythmoot is coming up soon. We are but a fortnight from Mythmoot um, down in Leesburg, Virginia. Again, uh, many of us will be gathering together as we are wont to do every year this time of year. Um, 
returning to our uh, fun traditional venue at the National Conference Center uh, for Mythmoot. And it is... Um, uh, it's always such a delightful time. So uh, just wanted to invite folks, anybody who can get there even for one day out of the conference, um, it's, uh, it is it is well worth it. It's such a wonderful time uh, of getting back together again. And, uh, and of course, you can also join us remotely if you can't make it to the Washington, D.C. area. Um, uh, so you can, you can still join us um, in... Uh, you can still join us in our, uh, uh, yeah, the Casa uh, Doom-like setting. Um, though you don't have to have any fear, vague or otherwise, of our venue, because it's um, it's totally post, it's in a post-Balrog state. So, um, though the caverns are, are vast, uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, that is certainly, that is certainly true. Um Anyway, so again, that is coming up uh, just a, a fortnight from this coming Thursday. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's the last full weekend of June there, um, and we're going to be uh, uh, we're going to be just excited to get together again as usual. So, okay, next, let's get back into the text. Okay, so. As I recall, and you guys will have to help me remember because. I, I missed last week because I was traveling, and it's been two weeks, so I gotta remember anything. Um, as I recall, we were just looking at the beginning of this. We just looked at the opening paragraph here, I think. Um, okay. There is a way that we may attempt, said Gandalf. I thought from the beginning, when I first considered this journey, that we should try it. But it is not a pleasant way, and I have not spoken of it to the company before. Aragorn was against it, until the pass over the mountains had at least been tried. "'If it is a worse road than the Redhorn Gate, then it must be evil indeed,' said Mary. "'But you had better tell us about it, and let us know the worst at once.' "'The road that I speak of leads to the mines of Moria,' said Gandalf. Only Gimli lifted up his head. A smoldering fire was in his eyes. On all the others a dread fell at the mention of that name. Even to the hobbits it was a legend of vague fear.' The road may lead to Moria, but how can we hope that it will lead through Moria, said Aragorn darkly. All right. So we get three reactions from characters, right? Here, we, we look, the first paragraph is what we were focused on at the end of last time. Um, we get sort of, you know, Gandalf in kind of the narrating position, right? We get Mary's interjection, which is very interesting to hear from Mary, I think, in this kind of juncture. We get Gimli's reaction to the announcement of the Mines of Moria, and then we get Aragorn's response to Gandalf's observation. Let's, um, let's start with Gimli. I want to start with Gimli. The road that I speak of leads to the Mines of Moria. Now, First of all, why does Gandalf use the name the Mines of Moria? Right? Why does he call it the Mines of Moria? And I think that the answer to that question, it is the alliteration, I'm sure it doesn't hurt, Gildalo. And I think that's uh um uh yeah, it probably has something to do with it. However, um 
uh, one other thing to recall, that's what it was called in The Hobbit, right? So we do, we, we do, we should know something about Moria from if, if we've read The Hobbit, which this book doesn't absolutely assume, um, but, um, but it certainly does explicitly build on things from The Hobbit sometimes. Um, in chapter one of The Hobbit, there are references to the minds of Moria during Thorin's prose explanation, right? I say prose explanation because you'll remember when Bilbo first says to Thorin, hadn't you better explain what it's all about? You may remember that Thorin's response was, didn't you hear our song? Right? Um, like He already gave exposition, Bilbo, in poetry. Weren't you paying attention to the poetic exposition? Um, and uh, Bilbo demands a prose exposition, right? At which point um, Thorin launches into his prose explanation. And the minds of Moria come up afterwards. They come up when Gandalf is talking, is telling his story about finding the map and the key in the dungeons of the necromancer. Um, and Thorin mentions that they, the dwarves, have dealt with the goblins uh, in the mines of Moria. Um, and maybe they should take thought to the necromancer next. Right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, yeah. The, um, the mines of Moria are a, a thing, right? They're a thing that the reader at least has a chance to recognize. Now, of course, we know we've heard much more about Moria already in this book, right? We got, uh, Glowin's report to the Council of Elrond. We know about Balin and his company going to Moria, um, uh, hoping to find the Ring uh, of Thror there, right? And Gandalf having to disabuse the, him of the fact that that was possible, right? So, um, so Thurston, my understanding here um, is that... Um, uh, uh, yeah, first of all, thank you, JJ, for posting in those passages from chapter one. Um, Gandalf's explanation, your grandfather Thror was killed, you remember, in the mines of Moria by Azog the Goblin. Um, and then um, your grandfather gave the map to his son for safety before he went to the mines of Moria. And then Thorin saying, we have long ago paid the goblins of Moria. So yeah, that's how the mines of Moria is are first raised. That's the first context that we're given is that... Um, Thorin's grandfather Thror was killed in the mines of Moria by Azog the Goblin, right? And that was the beginning. And we, so the sense, a lot, we don't know most of the details about the Dwarf and Goblin War, right? Like the Battle of Alzanul Bazaar and the Burned Dwarves and all that stuff is, is detailed in Appendix A, um, but we're not there yet, right? Um, but, um, uh, Yes, very good, JJ. Thank you. Um, Elrond mentions it once they get to Rivendell. So in chapter three, it comes up again, um, talking about the trolls plundering other plunderers. Uh, and then he, that is Elrond, opining that there are still forgotten treasures of old to be found in the deserted caverns of the mines of Moria since the Dwarf and Goblin War. So again, what do we know about uh, the Mines of Moria. There's a reason I want to dig all this stuff up and kind of review what we know about it, because you'll notice we're told that even to the hobbits, the Mines of Moria, the name of the Mines of Moria is a legend of vague fear, right? Um, both the fear associated with Moria and the vagueness of that fear 
is interesting, and I I'm, I I want to see what's been sort of building there, right? Um. So um. So yeah, so we have this idea. The goblins lived there, so the goblin chieftain Azog, who killed Thorin's grandfather, is there. This precipitated a war. That is the killing, not his being there alone. Um, I, I precipitated a war between the goblins and the dwarves, which Thorin looks upon with some satisfaction. Right, that um, uh, they have um, uh, paid the goblins of Moria. Right, we have long ago paid the goblins of Moria. Now Elrond's later reference um, in chapter three. The idea that there are still forgotten treasures of old to be found in the deserted caverns of the mines of Moria since the Dwarf and Goblin War. Notice that he character he Elrond characterizes Moria as deserted since the Dwarf and Goblin War, um, which okay, we, we know was a long time ago. Thorin was an old dwarf uh, when we met him in the Hobbit, um, and it's now been seventy years since then. Right, so we're talking about generations back. Um, there were goblins there, there was a war. And so are there orcs who live in Moria? This is an uncertain question, right? Um, but none of that seems to explain the vague fear. Also notice that, um, the idea of forgotten treasures of old, um, being there to be found in the deserted caverns of the mines of Moria seems to be one of the concepts that was brought up about Moria in The Hobbit that seems to lead into the whole Balin story, Glowen's tale in the Council of Elrond, right? Why, why did Balin go to Moria? Why did he go to Khazad-dûm? Um, well, there might be forgot. So notice how in retrospect, right, um, Notice how, in retrospect, the forgotten treasures of old, now specifically, that, um, remember, Glowin is kind of cagey about it, right? He says, indeed, I may now reveal. Um, after the revelations that have happened in that room, he feels that he can now reveal that it was partly to go looking for the last of the seven that Balin wanted to go to Moria in the first place. Um... Uh, so, so yeah, okay. So that's what we know, and and we know that Balin has presumably died there, um, as we were told at the Council of Elrond, that they haven't heard from Balin in in, in many years. Um, uh, Balin, you know, listened to the whispers and resolved to go, and it's been what is. What has it been? Thirty years? Twenty-five years? It's been a significantly long time since they have heard anything from Balin's folk in Moria, and um, and they're all presumed dead. Um, now, Wobe, uh, your question is connected back to Tursten's question, which I was going to go back and answer. Um, if the Mines of Moria refers to the entire underground part of Moria, uh, or is there a particular region underground uh, that is the mines, and there's a long passage underground, the road to that region? Yeah, okay. Um, so, this is um, fun, right? Uh, you know, so... Um, 
first of all, although I strongly dislike the choice that Peter Jackson made to have Gimli, um, and it's it's not that Gimli is ignorant of what happened to Balin's people, it's that um, Gimli is, you know, movie Gimli is like sublimely confident that Balin is there um, with no evidence, as is obvious. Like, in the film, when they find the remains, like the corpses of the dead dwarves of Balin's company, they are, you know, dried, dust-covered, cobweb-ridden skeletons, right? I mean, so it's obvious that everyone in this settlement has been dead for a very long time. And yet, for reasons that are wholly inconsistent, I mean, there's not only, it's not just that there's no justification for it in the text, but it, just, it doesn't make any sense in the movie um, that Gimli should look so dumb. Um, but um, anyway, so uh, I dislike that. But there's one thing that I really do like, that I always did like about uh, some one of Gimli's speeches in the film. And that is when he laughs about, um, you know, and they call it a mine, a mine, right? Um, the idea of Gimli laughing at people referring to Khazad-dûm as the mines of Moria, um, that they think that that's accurate or sufficient, right? And that this is just kind of risible uh, to a dwarf. I like that element. Because, of course, there is... Um, uh, there is a, um, a sort of a gap here, right? Now, in... As usual, when we're thinking about... You know, um, whenever I'm asking, whenever I'm answering, you know, sort of answering questions about Tolkien, there are always a couple different ways that you can answer. I don't just mean you can have different opinions or something like that, but there are two different frameworks from which you can answer almost any question about the text, right? One is to answer it from inside the text, and one, you know, there's the uh, there's the looking at, and there's the looking along. Uh, answer, right? There's the answer from within the story, and there's the answer from without the story. That is the answer about, uh, that talks about, uh, you know, Tolkien's own creative process. Uh, looking at the latter first, um, the answer to why they're called the Mines of Moria um, is that that's the name Tolkien came up with in The Hobbit, Right, which was kind of a. Th I mean, it was not. It was a way to introduce the goblins to lay the seeds for the battles between the dwarves and the goblins, and so that when Bolg, son of Azog, shows up with the goblins in the Battle of Five Armies, it's going to mean something, right? Um, but um, um, but that's really it. We don't. We're, they don't get near Moria. Moria, the mines of Moria. It's not really, you know. So he just threw it. And I do think this is where, by the way, I think the alliteration comes in. Um, you know, associating dwarves with mines and uh, mines of Moria. There you go. Um, Tolkien only came to decide that the mines of Moria were actually Khazad Dûm later on. Right, that they were going to be a dwarf, a central dwarf place, not just a, 
a random set of mines, right? But a central dwarf hall. Um, he was deciding earlier on. Um, Khazad-dûm was the name of Nogrod, the dwarvish name of Nogrod from the Silmarillion originally. I just talked about this, and you can read about it in War of the Jewels. Um, uh, it's buried, so it's a little hard to find in War of the Jewels, but it's there in War of the Jewels if you can find the bits about the, um, you know, the concerning the dwarves essay. Um, but um, anyway, uh, the in there, he uh, Christopher sort of walks us through the w- way in which Tolkien's ideas changed, um, which which place was being the the name Kazadum, um, which was originally one word, not hyphenated, um, is again it's it's kind of the name is sort of roaming about a little bit, um, and he decides in the end um, uh, that uh, it, it's going to be. It's going to be the Mines of Moria. It's going to be Khazad-dûm. So, yes, um, uh, Halogen Cactus. The concept of Khazad-dûm was existent before The Hobbit was written, but it wasn't that. Like, there was a concept of Khazad-dûm, but it was Nogrod. Like, it was, it was, it was the dwarves of Khazad-dûm who killed Thingol. Um, at the time The Hobbit was written. Um, which, by the way, may have something to do with that grudge, you know, that um, the Elven King and his people hold against the dwarves. Um, but um, anyway, so then he, you know, he changed his mind and kind of developed the idea differently uh, and decided that the mines of Moria were Khazad Doom. But so from a like historical perspective, real world literary history perspective, um, he has been figuring out, Tolkien has been figuring out and discovering what the Mines of Moria are. And it, it's really not going to be until this trip itself that he's going to, that it's going to really, really solidify. Um, that it's going to be, um, he's, it's, it's, he's got to like see it himself, right? Before he really knows um, what Moria looks like from within. Um, but, um, anyway, okay, so that's one reason I think that we get the road I speak of leads to the mines of Moria. Um, and also I think by default, Gandalf tends to speak Hobbit speech, right? Um, where does the term Dwarodelf fit in? Oh man, Nancy, it's still, that's complicated too. Dwarodelf was used as a translation. It was used as, it's, it was an English translation of Khazad-dûm. Um, so he had three names for all of the different dwarf, whole, well, at least the three that are in the stories, right? The original two, Belagost and Nogrod from the Silmarillion stories, and then the third one that was kind of emerging right out in the Misty Mountains, um, emerging through the Hobbit and such. And uh, Dwarodelf was always the English translation of the term Khazad-dûm. I believe I'm getting that correct. Um, uh, Khazad-dûm, it means Dwarodelf, the delvings. Yeah, dwarf delvings. That's exactly... Dwarvings, not dwarvings, delvings of dwarves, plural, is what the Dwarodelf 
is. Exactly. A directive archaic translation of Casa Doom is precisely what Duaro Delph is. Exactly. Uh, Pelicano. Um, so, uh, so yes. Uh, but again, so the Duaro Delph, Nogrod was the Duaro, the Duaro Delph for a while and before Moria became the Duaro Delph. Um, the question, um, the question was, what was the Elvish name? Right. So you've got Duaro Delph, which is a which is a literal though archaic translation of uh, of Khazad Doom. Um, what was it going to be called in Elvish? Right. And uh, the eventual name that he settled on, Hathadrond, uh, for Moria pre Balrog. Right. Which was that was the original Elvish name. I say, and by original, I mean within the world of the story. Right. Within the world of the story. Um, before the Balrog comes out and it's called Moria, which means the Black Pit. Um, uh, the elves didn't call it the Black Pit before the dwarf, before the, the dwarf, before the Balrog came out, because that would have been rude. Um, they, uh, they called it, uh, they called it Hathadrond, and then they changed the name to Moria post Balrog. Um, that's the sort of the version in the story that we get in the appendices, essentially. Um, but the, the, the application of the Elvish name Hathadrond to Moria came latest. Like, that's the, that's the final step, essentially. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Senalisha. That's why, if you look at the runes on... That's why when Gandalf is going to read the inscription above the gates... And why, if you look at the runes on the gates of Moria, you will see that it says uh, the the gates of Durin, Lord of Moria. Um, and that's uh, be, be, even though like Durin, that seems anachronistic. Right. Um, and it, it is anachronistic. Right. Um, it is anachronistic because that's Moria originally was. Again, originally now speaking outside, real world originally, historically. Remember The Hobbit, Mines of Moria, that's where it starts, right? Um, so Moria is the Elvish name at first. Um, and then later on, he decides, nah, they didn't, they didn't just, um, they didn't lead with the insult, right? They didn't, they didn't, the elves didn't come in from day one saying, hey, nice pit you've got here. We'll call it Moria, right? Um... Uh, Tolkien decided that that's not how it went down, in fact. And why does he make that decision? Honestly, my theory... This is a theory. Mind, I, I can't prove this. Um, but my theory, based on how the story... This, like, the sequence in which the story unfolds, which we can see based on, the, based on what we see in the manuscript, um, the idea... I was about to say, remember... Maybe you don't remember. Uh, maybe you've never read The Return of the Shadow and The Treason of Isengard. But if you did the um, Mythgard Academy discussions with me on those books, you will remember that the character of Galadriel emerged spontaneously when the narrative got to Lothlorien. They were going through the mines of Moria. They met the Balrog. Um, uh, and um, then they, uh, they met the Balrog. Gandalf falls... Then they're going to encounter the elves, and his original idea for the encounter with the elves was just the business in the flat, right? Um, uh, just the business in the flat. Um, 
and then but after they got to you know so the meeting with Haldir and the 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 um uh you know the orcs chasing them and going by underneath and the encounter with Gollum in the tree that that was like going to be the whole business right and it was only after he started that that he was like hey they should they should they should go into the forest right let's like take them into fairy and see what happens and then he was like there should be a fairy queen Right. Um, and those of you who have read things like um, Smith of Wooten Major will know that the idea of a fairy queen, that's a later book, of course, that's this later work, I should say. Um, but still, you'll know that the concept of a fairy queen is is uh, clearly one that was meaningful to him. Right. So he decides, hey, there should be a fairy queen. And um, and so he invents Goadriel as the story of Goadriel develops and that idea of her allegiance with the dwarves, right? Of her of her friendship with the dwarves, at the very least. Um, which Gimli perce- perceives when he meets her, as we'll see, uh, not too very long from now. Um, that's where I think the concept... Uh, that seems to me to be like the seeds of the idea that maybe they didn't... Maybe the elves didn't lead with an insult. Maybe they wanted to start with more... with, uh, with friendship. Um... Mm-hmm. And um, anyhow, yeah. So, and Tom, you're certainly right. Um, elves giving rude names to things, like coming in and saying, hey, nice black pit you've got here, right? Um, would be very unlike the elves, he says, uh, thinking of the stunted people and the followers, right? Um, or like <laughs> some of those names for humans, Tom, are, are classic, right? And they call like the sickly and that sort of thing, right? So, yeah, the sickly, exactly. Exactly, yeah. We'll call you the sickly and we'll call you the stunted people. And, uh, yeah, as Wobe points out, some um, some elves do have overmerry tongues. <laughs> yes, elves are guilty of lots of microaggressions. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't think they would see it that way, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and for Thoughtless, you're right. It doesn't sound quite so ill when spoken in the high tongue. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah, the the tendency to like call it as they see it, right? I mean, like they're not wrong about either one, right? Dwarves, a little bit stunted, right? Humans, subject to diseases that elves aren't. Um, like they just waste away and just up and die, right? Let's call them like those who waste away and up and die. Um, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, um, yes. So, so yes, it does seem not wholly unlike the elves to ascribe a name like the Black Pit to uh, the greatest of all of the mansions of the dwarves. Um, anyway, Turstan, this you will notice this is an enormously roundabout and long-winded way of answering your extremely simple question. Does the Mines of Moria refer to a specific area or does it refer to the whole thing? And like, it's just like a misnomer essentially Um, because the answer is it's complicated, right? As the concept develops, it seems to me, um, I do not believe that the phrase, the Mines of Moria tends to be applied just to a sub area. Um, that I could imagine Tolkien do it. So Tolkien was a great retconner, right? When he, um, you know, has an idea and then the idea grows and develops and changes. Um, and then he's got to go back and he's got to refit 
what he said before about it and make that work out. Um, Tolkien's great at that, loves doing that, um, seems to really enjoy that kind of thing, actually. Um, and the sort of thing that you suggest is a way I could Im- I could have imagined him doing it to decide, like, well, when they called it the Mines of Moria, they weren't being slighting and they weren't just wrong. They... Um, uh, it's just that they were referring to, you know, he could have written this whole thing about like how there were a famous set of mines, uh, you know, in Moria called the mines of Moria. And these were sometimes like through synecdoche, you know, became the, uh, you know, it, possibly he could have, um, um, he could have said something like that, but I, I don't remember that he ever did say anything like that. And so I think it's, um, it seems to me that calling them the mines of Moria... Notice that Aragorn doesn't call them that. Aragorn just calls it Moria. right? The road may lead to Moria, but how can we hope that it will lead through Moria? So when Gandalf says, the road that I speak of leads to the mines of Moria, I think he's speaking for the Hobbit's benefit, primarily. Um, because he knows... Because Gandalf has presumably read Bilbo's book too... Um, do you think he has? Gosh, I've never even asked myself that question before. I bet he I bet he would. I bet Bilbo would show him. Surely he has, right? I mean, we know he refers to the book. Like he and Bilbo talk about. We know Bilbo hasn't kept it secret, right? Um uh because he, we know that there, you know, he Bilbo says to Gandalf in chapter one, you know, that he's thought of an ending to his book. Remember, and then Gandalf teases him about that. Um, so we know that they, we know that he knows about it. Um, would I think there's indirect evidence to suggest that Gandalf has read it? Um, I think that even Frodo's words to Gandalf in chapter two, when uh, when Gandalf asks Frodo if Bilbo ever still told him the story about how he got the ring and um, Frodo's like, oh yeah, of course he did. And then Gandalf says, which story I wonder, right? And Frodo says, oh, not the one that he put in his book, right? The way that Frodo says that I think could be taken as a sort of acknowledgement that... Um, Gandalf has read the book and knows full well what's in the book, right? Um, If Frodo knew or even suspected that Gandalf had never been allowed to read the book, he probably wouldn't have said that, right? Because, I mean, how would Gandalf know what was in the book? Um, So, um, yeah, and I know that Gandalf was there when Bilbo told the original lie. I'm just thinking of the actual actual reference. Um, uh, Yeah, but I, I... so I'm still going to, if I have to guess, and we don't have much to do other than guess, but I'm still going to guess um, that uh, that Gandalf read the book. Even if you think about how Gandalf spoke of, or how Bilbo accused Gandalf of badgering him until... Uh, you know, like you were always badgering me about, uh, you know, uh, my ring and the reference at the very end of the prologue to um, how, you know, it, it like strained their friendship for a time, the kind of pressure that he was putting on him. I would think um, even if only um, uh, 
even if only to like see what it was Bilbo even if he doesn't you know he, he doesn't believe Bilbo's lie um, he's seeing through it already I think that he would want to read he would insist on reading the account that Bilbo wrote to see what kind of clues he could pick up so I mean even from like a, a purely anthropological standpoint he's going to want to read Bilbo's first hand account his untrue account right because that itself I think would be would be revealing um and Amorea, I think it very likely that Bilbo read him some or all of the book out loud himself. I could easily believe that. Um, yeah. Lady Shmavio, I, could, I couldn't prove that uh, Gandalf would actually make a drinking game of it and take a shot every time Bilbo embellishes the truth. I'm not sure. I think we can prove that that didn't happen on account of um, Gandalf is still alive when this story begins. So um, teasing. Teasing Bilbo. Just a joke. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, I think, um, yeah, smoking game more likely. Yeah. Quite, quite likely, quite likely. Um, anyway, the point here is that I think that Gandalf's words are primarily for the benefit of the hobbits. And I think that's why he calls them the Mines of Moria, because that's how Bilbo referred to it. And that is um, how the hobbits, therefore, would would know it. Um, yeah, Rin, it's a great question. How much al alcohol would it take to forcibly disembody a Maiar? Um, yeah, I mean, having had... Um, prolonged discussions about Gandalf's buttocks before. I suppose we could talk about his liver as well, um, but um, but we probably shouldn't. <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Reenactment at the next mood. Oh, man. No way. No way. We'd have to up our insurance. Um, uh, <laughs> anyhow. Um, okay. Uh, but can it, notice how the two statements, the Gandalf's calling at the mines of Moria and the idea that to the hobbits it was a legend of vague fear, like the legend of vague fear and the name the mines of Moria kind of frame that the that that first paragraph, um, the paragraph of the revelation. Right. Which is, again, a, another way in which it's just clearly a sort of hobbit centric thing. Um, textual footnote on that. Um, I've just said, and I've said a couple times, that it seems that Gandalf is generally accommodating his speech. Like, when Gandalf is talking and setting things up, it frequently seems that the hobbits are his primary audience, right? Um, it's not that he's like, it's not that Gandalf doesn't care about, you know, Gimli and Legolas and, and, and everybody else um, and Boromir, but he, um, it's the hobbits, that are his primary audience. And I think that this is another example of the, the hobbits being his primary audience. But here's the question. The question is, does the Gandalf that we get in the story talk that way? Because the Gandalf who was sitting at the near the knees of Carothros actually talked that way. Or are we getting this because this is a hobbit narrator? The Red Book was written by a hobbit narrator for hobbits. 
right? So of course she's going to call it the minds of Moria, right? Um, uh, you know, that's, um, yeah, yeah. And the hobbits are considered surrogates for the reader, and that's certainly true, Dr. Benway, but, um, uh, but that doesn't necessarily, and I, I guess actually in this case, this is an example of the fact that we, we do share the, um, uh, uh, sort of, uh, scope of knowledge of the hobbits, right? Um, cause we've, 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 we've read the hobbit and that's the story that Frodo and the other hobbits would have heard. Right. So, um, yeah. Now, Eric, did Tolkien have that question in mind? Um, no, I, but I do. <laughs> It's still a fun question to ask. Um, but, um, yeah. Is the Hobbit's knowledge based on the Red Book exclusively? It would have been, at this point, um, presumably not in future years, for future generations after Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin. They, in those years... Um, after the inclusion of the Shire in the reunited kingdom, um, they would have had other sources of information besides the Red Book, right? But the original audience of the Red Book would certainly not have. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, okay, all right. In the middle of that the Hobbit's reaction at the end of the paragraph and the use of the Hobbit label Minds of Moria at the beginning of the paragraph, we have Gimli's reaction. Um, I love the, the difference. Notice how on all the others, a dread fell at the mention of that name. So the, the metaphor that Tolkien uses, a, a dread, like something is falling down on them, right? Like they feel this weight of dread which descends upon them. But notice what happens to Gimli. Gimli lifts up his head, right? While everyone else is feeling suddenly weighed down by dread, Gimli is like going in the, he's the one who's going in the opposite direction, right? He's the one who's lifting up his head while everyone else is drooping um, at the name, the Mines of Moria. Um, and a smoldering fire was in his eyes. Um, the smoldering fire, I think is really interesting. Um, what do you think? What does that mean? This is one of those things that just kind of thinking about it here. It's one of those things that I often skip over because I feel like I know what it means. But then when I look at it and think about it, I think actually that could mean like five different things, right? Um, it could be desire for revenge, the smoldering fire, right? Um, the fire that is burning in Gimli's eyes could be the fire of vengefulness. Right? That'd be kind of a kind of dwarvish thing. Um, it'd be a dwarvish sort of fire to burn in his eyes. Um, and... Uh, no, he doesn't yet know for sure what happened to Balin, but Forthalus is... I mean, they're all assuming Balin is dead. Um, I mean, Balin is dead until proven otherwise. Uh, and I, so, I mean, I think he would be looking for 
vengeance. But also, I this is what that's one of the things though. I mean, um, if he, they don't know. Nobody has ever known. Um, there's not been any opportunity. Dan wouldn't let anybody go to Moria because he's not going to throw good dwarves after bad, right? He's he's not going to he's not going to let anyone else die in Moria because that clearly didn't pan out. And yeah, they'd like to know, but you know they don't want to risk anybody else in order to. Uh, uh, in order to do it. So uh, could there be a sort of passion, right? Remember Gimli's speaking about his dreams, right? Um, he, he has only ever before seen the mountains of Moria once with his waking vision, right? Um, he speaks of it haunting their dreams and implies, right, that he himself has had dreams of the mountains of Moria. Um, that he is full of a sudden passionate desire to look upon Khazad-dûm, right? To see Khazad-dûm himself, which he never thought would be possible, right? It, it, they're not allowed to go. Dan won't let them go, right? You mean I could see Moria? Myself, like not only just see the mountains of Moria from a distance with my waking eyes, but myself enter Khazad-dûm. And since I'm entering Khazad-dûm, maybe I will find some evidence about what happened to Balin and his people, so that I could bring that news back to you know to Dan and to Erebor. Um, yes, Pelic. Uh, Pelicano, that's just what I was thinking. A fierce and jealous love, the desire of the hearts of dwarves. The desire of the hearts of dwarves is kind of fiery, right? Um, and now I know that the desire of the hearts of dwarves that is being described in the passage you're quoting from in chapter one of The Hobbit is about treasure, right? It's about, uh, it's about riches, um, uh, which is different from what we're getting here. But still, dwarves have fiery desires in that way. Um, uh, and yes, uh, Jackie, he did wax poetic about the mountain peaks. Imagine how he'd feel about seeing Moria for himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so yes, I, I, I think it could be anger. I mean, I think it could be a desire for vengeance. Um, but the more I... And I think... The primary association I've always had in this passage is with is desire. Um, but notice it's a it's a smoldering desire, right? Um, his the fire of his desire, if it is desire in his eyes, but for argument's sake, assume it is for a moment. Um, the desire in his eyes, the fire of his desire is smoldering. Um, it's, it's, but it's burning, but it's burning at a low level, right? Um, he is... Uh, his eyes are not blazing with fire, right? Um, he is... Only Gimli lifted up his head, a smoldering fire was in his eyes, right? Um... He is showing a long-burning but 
low banked fire of desire in his eyes. He has always wanted to see Moria. This is a long running thing, right? Um, a fire that is smoldering is a fire which has like almost burned out, but still lingers, right? It's, um, uh, but of course could, if you throw new fuel on it, could uh, burst into flame again quickly, right? Um, that's the kind of fire. I think it's the sort of the flavor of desire that Gimli has to see Moria. Um, this is not just Gimli being like, yes, right? You know, he's, he's, um, the, if his desire is smoldering in his eyes, he would have had it this whole time, right? But now it's showing, right? Now it's kind of uh, flickering up again. And Nancy, yes, he doesn't dread it at all. Again, that's why I think the, 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 the vertical language, right? The, the falling down, dread falling down on all the rest of them and Gimli lifting up his head, it shows us clearly the absolute reversal there. Gimli feels no dread. Gimli is not oppressed with fear, dread, any of those things, right? To Gimli, this is opportunity, right? An opportunity to indulge a desire that he has been keeping banked carefully and under control in his own mind and heart for a long time. Um, yeah, he dared not hope he would ever see it. Bima, that, that seems exactly right. Um, yes, yes. Um, and now the idea, oh, man, we may actually go to the mines of Moria, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But can I just say, I love the indefiniteness of this sentence. Only Gimli lifted up his head. A smoldering fire was in his eyes. Um, Tolkien doesn't tell us what kind of fire it is. And I think that's quite deliberate. Is it a desire to look upon the beauty of Moria? Is it a dwarvish, greedy desire to reclaim Moria? Right? To like, yes, dude, Moria is ours, and I shall return! Right? I mean, is there, is there, is that going on there? Right? Um, is, is there a desire for vengeance in there? Is this anger? Right? Um, is, you know, there are all kinds of, um, possibilities here. It could certainly be um, all of the above. Yeah, Moria is mine! Right now, exactly, exactly. Well, not Nancy, I agree that Gimli is a, is a, is, is Dwarf 3.0, um, uh, but even 3.0 dwarves still have a vengeance thing, you know, like, that's still kind of dwarvish, and, um, you know, and of course, even Dwarf 3.0 can go wrong, right? Um, what are we seeing? And also remember, we don't, we don't, we don't know Gimli very well, right? I mean, this is very early in our relationship with Gimli personally, this passage is, right? Um, sorry, um, quick reminder when I talk about Dwarf 3.0. So yeah, that's, that's carrying over language that I was using in the War of the Jewels class. Um, uh, dwarf 1.0, very first version from the Book of Lost Tales, was the dwarves were children of Melkor. They were in the same list as orcs and trolls, 
right? Orcs, trolls, dwarves, they're evil. They're offspring of evil. Um, he revised that. Dwarf 2.0. Dwarf, dwarves 2.0 were um, not craftsmen. They didn't make any beautiful things. They were merchants. Primarily, there were weapons dealers, right? There were arms dealers, and they were war profiteers selling to both sides. So they were still kind of uh, slime buckets, uh, but they weren't like orcs anymore. They were sort of quasi-neutral third-party slime buckets that you couldn't really trust well. And those are the dwarves that showed up um, on Bilbo's doorstep at the beginning of The Hobbit when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit. That's what dwarves were. And you can hear that language. Listen to what Smaug says about dwarves. Now, Smaug is not being very nice, right? But he's not wrong either. Think about the dwarves. Um, think about the narrator talking about the dwarves, right? Yeah, exactly, Bru Bruinier. Dwarves are not heroes, right? Um, but... Uh, um, uh, uh, I'm not sure I'll do the whole quote accurately from memory. Dwarves are not heroes. Um, some are uh, some are some bad adjective and pretty bad lots. Um, you know, dwarves are um, uh, something with a with a, uh, a high opinion of the value of money. Um, uh, but some dwarves are are like reasonably good people if you don't expect too much. Thank you, JJ. I was waiting for you to quote it. I knew you would. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk. That was it. Calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorin and company if you don't expect too much. There's the Hobbit and the narrator. The narrator in the Hobbit, even. Um, and that's, um, that's, that's, that's Dwarf 2.0 right there. That's Dwarf, dwarf 2.0. Um, that Dwarf 3.0, his decision to make dwarves really like one of the free people, more or less, on a par, you know, with elves and humans, which means some of them can be horrible, right? Um, uh, but not, uh, but again, they're still getting kind of better and better. That is honestly, um, I believe that that conversion, that change in Tolkien's mind from what, from what I call Dwarf 2.0, that, 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 that version of the dwarves to Gimli. Gimli is a dwarf 3.0 and it happens on Thorin's deathbed. Well, it happens when Thorin charges out of the Lonely Mountain during the Battle of Five Armies and then is like cemented on Thorin's deathbed and then through Dan's actions afterwards. And um, now we, we've got dwarf 3.0. Um, and absolutely dwarf 1.0 is very Germanic myth-like. 100%. Yep. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, yep, yep. Dragonish misers and backstabbers, that, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yes, yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not, I don't know if you ever got to Dwarf 4.0. They'd be Galadriel adjacent? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, you know, you could argue, Arnas, you could argue that Gimli himself, over the course of the Lord of the Rings becomes a sort of dwarf 4.0, right? Um, was the Lord of the Rings the first instance of heroic dwarves? Well, no, no, the end of the Hobbit, right? The end of the Hobbit. That's the first instance of heroic dwarves. Um, 
dwarves accomplished some great things. The, uh, um, oh, what's his face? Um, Azakal, right? Who stabs Glaurung, uh, in the underbelly, um, in the, um, uh, it's the near knife, isn't it? The near knife. Um, anyway, uh, that's, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, in literary history. I'm... No, can't be. Can't be. I don't know enough about the whole history of dwarves in literary history, but um uh yeah, yeah. Um Yep. Disney Snow White had heroic dwarves? Yeah. Yeah. In the same week that Tolkien did in The Hobbit. Um, there's something in the water, man. I don't know what, but there it was. Everybody was writing stories about big parties of dwarves that year, apparently. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Point is, we don't know Gimli, right? Um, and we get this I think what we have to admit is an ambivalent statement. Only Gimli lifted up his head. A smoldering fire was in his eyes. What does that mean? Right. And again, it could mean several things. It could mean several things at once. Right. Um, it certainly could mean several different things. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm really tempted to comment on people. Some people are making comments about C.S. Lewis's dwarves way off topic so I'm not going to go there but but yes I I I hear you um anyway um so again final comment we don't know um how to read yet the smoldering fire in Gimli's eyes um we should we should watch that dwarf you know we should maybe have an eye on that dwarf, right? Uh, if um, if we're uh, as we proceed through Moria, watch him carefully to see what we um, to see what we um, to see what we see. But certainly, it seems like it's probably a good sign that while everyone else is being weighed down by dread, Gimli is the one lifting up his head. Um, yeah. Let's talk about Aragorn. Um, oh, interesting, Maureen. Thank you for that. Maureen was just doing a, a search in the e-text for uh, seeing if anybody else has smoldering eyes and under what circumstances anybody's eyes smolder. Um, Sam's eyes are going to smolder after he kills his first orc. Okay. Okay. Um, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Anyhow, but let's talk about Aragorn. Um, I, someone earlier was asking the question, do we understand Gandalf to be throwing Aragorn under the bus at the end of that first paragraph? Aragorn was against it until the pass over the mountains had at least been tried. Do we hear this as... Um, uh, um, do we hear this as... as Gandalf saying, and if you all 
you know, did not enjoy your little walk in the snow. Blame Aragorn, not me. Um, I don't think so. Um, I think he is because notice that he brings up Aragorn not to explain why we didn't go that way before. Right. Gandalf does say he does a little he does a little. I told you so. Right. I thought from the beginning when I first considered this journey that we should try it. Um, He's like, yeah, this has kind of been my plan A all along. Right. But it is not a pleasant way. Right. So in context there. Right. He's saying, I always thought that we should go this way. But he, he then immediately, I think, jumps in when he says it's not a pleasant way. He's immediately jumping in and saying, not because I, I think it's the best way, right? He's not trying to say, well, you know, I always thought it would be best to go to Moria, but like, you know, smarty pants Aragorn thought he had a better plan, right? But I always knew Moria was the best plan. Gandalf's not trying to pretend it's the best plan, right? Um, what he's saying is, when I first considered this journey, I thought that we should try it. Um, He believes that it is the right road. It is the correct road for them to take. He had a a feeling. Um, Feeling isn't his word. I thought from the beginning, he says. Um, He had a notion. He had a notion that they were going to end up in Moria. Um, something told him, right? He had a notion that that's what they're, but it's not a pleasant way, right? Like he didn't want to do it. You know, he's not, he, he, it was not in that sense. It wasn't ever his plan A. In fact, he says, not only is it not a pleasant way, um, but he, he's not even spoken of it, right? Like I, I didn't even, not only did I not suggest it and did I not lobby for, did I not lobby for it with a company, um, or try to convince y'all to like agree with me that we should go to Moria. I didn't even think of it. And so when he brings up, um, when he brings up Aragorn here, Aragorn, he's bringing up Aragorn not to say. This is why I don't think he's throwing him under the bus. He's not bringing Aragorn up in order to say merely Aragorn's brilliant idea was to go over the mountains. Right. And we all see how that worked out. So now can we please do what I wanted to do in the first place? Right. That's not the tone. That's not the direction of what Gandalf is saying here. When he brings up Aragorn, what Aragorn was against, I believe the literal reference that he's making when he says Aragorn was against it. Like, what is the antecedent of it? Right. The antecedent of it is speaking of it to the company, which we know to be literally true. What was Aragorn against? Aragorn was against even mentioning it to the company. He wasn't just against going there. He was. But that's not what he... He was against even raising the question to the company. Um, speaking of it. And and Gandalf is saying, yeah, I didn't... Um, uh, I didn't speak of it before. Um, because Aragorn was against speaking about it until the pass over the mountains had at least been tried. Um, and in saying this, he is very, very gently saying the thing I'm going to suggest. Now, so he's kind of he's kind of saying two things right in this paragraph. The first thing he's saying is this backup plan, right? This um, this next 
suggestion that I'm going to make is so far below crossing over the Redhorn Gate that we didn't even want to talk about it until the Pass Over the Mountains had been tried. And you all know how that turned out, right? So, um, but despite even now seeing how badly the attempt to cross over the mountain turned out, um, we still, like, we didn't even want to, 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 to speak of the other thing until we'd given that a shot, right? That's how bad it is. So he's not pulling punches there, right? I mean, but he is being gentle and very indirect. It's it's not a pleasant way. That is um, um, Lytotes, right? Um, that is a uh, uh, serious opposite of exaggeration, right? The opposite of hyperbole. Um, it's not a pleasant way. Serious understatement. Um and it's so bad that we didn't even want to talk about it. Aragorn asked me not to talk about it, which Frodo knows to be true, and we didn't. Um, then when he comes back to it... Yeah, now, uh, M.B. Waddell, that's really interesting. Gandalf is saying, it's going to suck, and it's my call entirely. That's really interesting. Gandalf is... Um, he is, like, uh, affiliating himself with this. And I think you're right. MV, I think that he is, he may be doing the opposite of throwing Aragorn under the bus here. He may be setting up to exonerate Aragorn, right? Um, the thing I'm going to suggest is going to be really scary, and there is a significant chance that it's going to be disastrously bad. And it's certainly, it's almost guaranteed to be viciously unpleasant under the very best of circumstances, right? And I want everybody to know that this is not Aragorn's idea. In fact, Aragorn was so strongly against this that he didn't even want me to talk about it. But now we have no choice, so let's talk about it, right? Um, but he is owning it, right? He is owning it. He is saying, I thought from the beginning that we should try it. Um... By the way, I'm not really sure how to read the word should in that sentence. That is, we couldn't understand the word should, meaning like we ought to try it. Like I, I thought from the beginning that we ought to try it. Like I was thinking like that this is what we should be doing. And like in going other ways, we've been wasting our time and doing what we oughtn't have done. That's one way to read the word should in that sentence. The other way is just as a sort of a, as a sort of a conditional statement about the future. Right. I thought we should try it. Like I, I thought we, I thought that we would end up trying it. Basically, um, that is that he had this sort of sinking feeling from the beginning that that's what was going to end up going down. Not again. Not like I felt that we had some sort of obligation to do it. I incline more towards that other um, reading. Yeah, the subjunctive would. Yes, exactly. Um, that like. Uh, I, when I first considered this way that we would end up trying it, basically, right, is, is how I'm understanding. Again, not the should of obligation. Um, it is a more archaic version. Well, because subjunctive and people don't use subjunctive very much anymore, including Tolkien in the last few paragraphs as we were looking at before. But whatever. Um, I'm uh, uh, 
who knows how old I will be before I understand Tolkien's patterns of subjunctive use. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Gildalaman says, I think we shall is how you'd say it in the present tense to, I thought we should is how you would say it, uh, in the, uh, in the, in the second. Yes. Like again, you could paraphrase that as from the beginning, I had a sinking feeling that this was going to end up happening. Right. Uh, when we were leaving Rivendell and we were headed in this direction, I was like, you know what, man, we're going to end up in Moria. Right. I know it. I know it. We're going to end up in Moria. Right. Take it to the bank. Hear me now. Believe me later. Right. We're going to end up in Moria. Um, that I think is, um, uh, that I think is what Gandalf is saying there. Um, now again, I was adding some spin to my paraphrase there. That is, I was adding dread, which Gandalf is not giving here. And I think very carefully, I thought from the beginning that we should try it. Um, you know, so he's, he starts with a positive, right? So the upside is, you know, I've been, I've been toying with this option from day one. Right. And and there's even like some kind of encouragement there. Right. Like I I always kind of had a feeling this was going to end up. So maybe you'll find that an encouraging thought. Right. Um, that, um, you know, something was telling me this was the so we're on the right track. Right. But it, but it's not pleasant. Disclaimer. It's not pleasant. And. Aragorn thought it was such a bad idea that he made me promise not to even talk about it anymore. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But now let's look at Aragorn's final response. The road may lead to Moria, but how can we hope that it will lead through Moria? Said Aragorn darkly. Yikes. Okay. Um, that's quite a thing to say in public here. Um, now, I don't take this as him challenging Gandalf, right? I don't think he's saying, this is him saying, yeah, maybe you can lead us to Moria, but I doubt you'll lead us through it, right? Again, he's not, he's not questioning Gandalf's ability. Um, but he is, I mean, this sounds to me like Aragorn saying, yeah, we can go to Moria, but what are our odds of survival? Spoiler. Not awesome, right? I mean, that that um, seems to me what Aragorn is darkly hinting at. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, Sphinx. That's a cool observation. The um, complicated contrast between Aragorn speaking darkly and the smoldering fire in the eyes of Gimli. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, sure, we can get in, but can we get out? Yes. Again, like he is saying, in his professional opinion, the odds of them succeeding on the journey through Moria, I think in part, he's warning everybody. Like, um, the what Gandalf just said, the road that I speak of leads to the mines of Moria. One way of understanding what Aragorn has just said is, please understand, we're not talking about going down a particularly sketchy stretch of highway here, right? This is not like 
there is a road that we must travel and, you know, it will be dark along the way. But, um, you know, if we stick to the road, we'll be fine. Right. He's like, no, this is it is this is not that kind of. Um, you know, you said, Gandalf, the road leads to the mines of Moria and you're literally correct. Yes, there is a road. Our path is going to lead us there. But is our path going to lead us out? Will the road lead through as well as to Moria? Um, and I certainly do agree um, that uh, his use of hope, but how can we hope that it will lead through Moria? Um, he is not very omdirful um, about their prospects, right? Um, yeah. Now, by the way, the word darkly I think is very interesting here. Um, here's, yes, Dolores Stroke, because the number one thing association I have with the word darkly is that one. Uh, the King James from near the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see now through a glass darkly. Um, that is to say, one very common use of the word dark in this regard. Like when someone speaks darkly, that often means the same thing that St. Paul meant when, or rather the same thing that the King James translators meant when they used the word darkly to translate St. Paul there. And that is to say, um, we do not see clearly. It is unknown. It is difficult to see. It is difficult to understand. Um, uh, the phrase dark, right? Uh, it does mean unclearly or obscurely. Yes. And we see it used in this way. Um, remember, isn't it Gimli who says um, when the the message about remember the paths of the dead, right? Uh, and um, Gimli says dark staves, dark ways, doubtless, but no darker than these staves are for me than these staves are to me, right? Um, he's using the word, he's punning on dark, right? In both sense, in both senses, right? Um, that the paths of the dead must be dark ways, um, literally and figuratively in some ways too, right? But like there's, there's darkness associated with them. But Gimli says these staves, that is these lines of poetry are dark to me in the sense they are obscure. I don't, I, I don't get them. I don't see the meaning of those lines is literally what Gimli means when he says that these staves are dark to him. Um, so when somebody says something darkly, my first impulse is to think, cause like I can understand how you can say something unclearly. Um, I've made many dark pronouncements in my life, usually not on purpose, right? When I'm, I'm just being unclear and people don't understand what I'm saying. I've just spoken darkly, right? Um, I'm not sure how to speak darkly in any other way, right? I mean, dark being used as an adjective. So again, dark can mean literally dim light. Dark can mean metaphorically connected to uh, evil, right? And the shadow, Um it can, and again, notice how both of those things are at play in Journey in the Dark, right? The title of the chapter, right? 
of course, it's literally there's there there are literally few light sources within Moria, right? So it's it's literally dark, but it's also figuratively dark. There is a darkness there. There is a uh, there is an evil. There is a danger. Um, there's also the unknown. Like it's also it's also a black box that they're going into, right? They don't know what's going to come. Um, so it's a journey in the dark in all three of those ways, right? Um, a journey without light or with very little light, a journey um, into uncertainty, and a journey um, under the shadow of malice and evil, right? Um, but those other two meanings, again, I know how you can speak unclearly. How can you speak dimly? Or, like, how do you speak darkly in another sense? I've never really gotten this word. Um, I guess, Nancy, I always, too, had the vague association with grimness, right? Um... Dizzy, you're suggesting uh, darkly uh, corresponding with um, despondence and regret. Yeah, yeah. Um, a kind of morbidity, sure. As in a dark mood. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, So you're thinking like vaguely, um, vaguely, um, said Aragorn depressingly, <laughs> essentially, right? Like, um, with a sort of a dark spirit in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, JJ, the dwarves speak darkly at Bilbo's house at the beginning of The Hobbit? They speak dark for dark business. Is that what you're thinking of? Um, we like the dark, dark for dark business. That's always that's the the dark passage I always think of in chapter one of the Hobbit. Um, yeah, dark for dark business. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, exactly. Um, they like the dark because it's a dark business, which means it's a secret business that's supposed to be kept in the dark. Right. Um, they don't want to shine a light on it um, because they're taking secret counsels and they like the dark. Right. Um, both because they're kind of creepy and sketchy, but also because they are committed to secrets. Right. Bilbo less so still at that point. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm inclined. um I'm inclined to agree to Juice Men with you. Um, it says, I think it's pessimistic. Tolkien's got lots of other good words like grim, fell, fey. Yeah. Um, and at least the word grim has an adverb form. Um, I don't think anyone ever did anything felly before or fey Um But. Um, uh, but you can do something grimly. You can speak grimly. Um, yeah. So something... 
I'm not sure pessimism is quite right. That's not quite the right word. Um, though, ironically, he is spoken, he is speaking of not having hope, right? How can we have hope? He asks, right? Uh, how can we hope that it will lead through Moria? Um, how can we, how can we go into this without Umdir, right? Um, so I do think that it is, he is speaking in the absence. He is both speaking of the absence of hope and he is speaking like in and with the absence of hope, I think. Um, and where there is no hope, where the, where there is not the light of hope. And we know hope is associated with light um, frequently in Tolkien. I mean, principally through that central image, right, of Gil Estel, the, um, the star of High Hope. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> Piano Sonner, I agree. Um, how can we have hope is a, as an intense way to express doubt, he says. It's not just a statement, we have no hope. Um, uh, yes, um, uh, but implying hope is completely off the table. Yeah, how can we hope? But how can we hope? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, cool. Thank you. JJ's finding some other examples. Um, okay. We've got Harry Goatleaf, who wasn't, who didn't speak darkly, but he stared darkly. Hobbits, four hobbits, and what's more out of the Shire by their talk, softly as if speaking to himself. He stared at them darkly for a moment and then slowly opened the gate. Okay. Okay. Um, and then the local hobbits stared in amazement and then sprang to their feet and shouted for Barlamin. This is right after Frollo. Frodo has just gone slapped through the floor without leaving a hole. All the company drew away from Pippin and Sam, who found themselves left alone in a corner and eyed darkly and doubtfully from a distance. There you go. There you go. Um, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, interesting. Um, a green great dragon is pointing out that uh, when Aeol is in pursuit of Maeglin and Aravel in the Silmarillion and he meets uh, uh, Kurifin, Kurifin looks darkly upon Aeol. Um, that's a hard one, Green Great Dragon, because it's, of course, like, I, I mean, Aeol's the dark elf, like, isn't everything, I mean, does, doesn't everybody look darkly by definition on Aeol? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. And um, we just, we well, so we just had darkly used in relationship to the genocide of crows, um, but their shadow followed them darkly because it's a shadow. That, see, that's literal darkness, right? Pretty simply, literal darkness. Um, yeah, yeah. Do juice, man, there's a moot paper in this somewhere. Oh, totally. There's totally a moot. I mean, man, like this kind of word study, so fascinating, right? Like once you go down these rabbit holes, it's so much fun. Um, but, um, oh, I, I think it very likely that there's more than one meeting. I think, uh, yeah, more than one meaning there. I, I think that it's, um, um, 
Yeah, lots of light back and dark back and forth. Well, exactly. Oh, Maria, that's why I was just bringing it back to what it like the chapter title, right? What it means that this is a journey in a journey in the dark, um, because darkness, right? Because you know, Tolkien chooses this as the title of the chapter. Darkness is going to be a motif, right? Um, we've started with the dark and secret way. Um, that's a quote from their earlier conversation, right? Not in this chapter, but uh, but you know we've 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 you know started associating darkness with Moria before we knew it was Moria, right? Um, but anyway, I think that probably um, what we're it's certainly not a light motif. I agree, it's a motif, but it's a dark motif, isn't it? Um, uh, yes, yes. Okay, so. Um, The, the primary association that I'm seeing kind of internally there, uh, the thing that jumps out to me as most important in trying to understand in what sense Aragorn is speaking darkly um, is the, the the contrast with hope, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now that's interesting, Arden Crayon. Do you realize... I never once asked myself that question, and I'm not sure how long it would have been before I, I, I would, before I did ask myself that question. And that is, is speaking, is saying something darkly just the opposite of saying something lightly? Because I don't think it is. I kind of think that when you're speaking lightly, the opposite of that is speaking heavily, rather than speaking dark. Yeah, I think it's light in terms of weight. Yeah, exactly. I think it's light versus heavy rather than light versus dark. Um, right, like lightheartedness, right? Um, again, that's a that's a weight metaphor rather than a luminosity metaphor, I believe. Um, yeah, Tom says that OED gives the definition of darkly here as in an obscure, mysterious, or vague way. That's what I always think is the number one. Again, like you look through glasses in 1 Corinthians 13, right? Um, uh, yes, yes. Um, that always strikes me as the... Um, all right, and then we also get in a gloomy, ominous, or sinister way. Okay. Or in a threatening way. Gloomy, check. Ominous, check. Sinister, mm, yeah. Gloomy and ominous, at least. Yeah, yeah. Um... Huh. MB Waddell says, so what is the opposite of speaking darkly then? Brightly? Brightly might be the opposite. Said Aragorn brightly. Um Yeah. Yeah, definitely brightly. Cheerfulness with like cheerfulness and, and optimism. Yeah. Um yeah. Hopefully. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, we're, we're late. But last quick point. Um, I'm really interested in the fact... I don't have too much to say about it, which is why I saved it for the end. Um, but um, I am really interested in the fact that Mary gets this line in the middle. 
right? That it's Mary who calls Gandalf out, right? Um, Mary who basically says, get on with it, right? Um, if it's a worse road than the Redhorn Gate, then it must be evil indeed, but you had better tell us all about it and let us know the worst at once. Um, that's, uh, it's just, again, I, I, I'm not sure what conclusions to draw from it. What I'm wanting to do and it's hard in this section of the book, is to try to track what we're given about Merry and Pippin, how Merry and Pippin are being differentiated both from each other, but also from everybody else. Like, what what is their role? What is their... Um, I wouldn't have expected Merry to be the one speaking up because Merry and Pippin um, haven't done a whole lot of speaking up, right? Um, Omarea, I agree. That is one interesting correlation. Mary is speaking up, not in like now Pippin is often a one to be the one to speak up, right? But that's just because Pippin is willing to go where angels fear to tread, right? Um Pippin is uh Pippin is gutsy and undeterred. Um, but this doesn't seem to be exactly exactly that, right? Um I do agree, Almarea, that this seems to be more like rem- uh, Amorea was recalling that when they leave the Shire to go into the Old Forest, um, uh, Mary is leading. He's in charge, right? Um, and that there, there is still that, like, I'm going to take charge of this situation. Um, and even in a sense, like, take responsibility. Um, so if one of the two of them speaks up on behalf of the Hobbits, Pippin is doing it out of, like, obstreperousness, Right. If Mary does it, it seems to be more in a sense of like, you know, let's um, let's get down to brass tacks here. Um, uh, but you had better tell us about it and let us know the worst at once. Um, he calls Gandalf out for withholding information and worse for like beating around the bush. Right. Um, uh, no need for a long, suspenseful speech, Gandalf. Spit it out. Um if it's a worse road than the Redhorn Gate, then it must be evil indeed," said Mary. Um, the word "evil" here—he's clearly using the word "evil," um, not in the sense of full of like wicked and malevolent creatures or something like that. Um, not not in the sense of wicked, but in the sense of um, yeah, bad, uh, uh, disadvantageous. Um, <laughs> Yes, Avalard. Evil meaning suckage. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, much suckage involved. Um, yes, that's what one of the... And we, we've talked about this uh, relatively recently, I think. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Yes, Mary demands to know the exact quantities of suckage. Exactly. You had better tell us about it and let us know the worst at once. Exactly how much is this going to suck, right? Um, uh, since it's worse than the road that almost killed us, uh, and uh, but now is our only option, right? Um, yes, yeah. You're right, suckage would sound better in the High Elvish speech uh, as well, no doubt. Um, yeah, yeah. Um yeah, not gonna lie, I kind of like that as a an illustrative synonym of evil. 
um, uh, evil is suckage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, <laughs> is a Balrog one unit of suckage? If it is, then, you know, we're looking at, uh, you know, one of those, um, one of those measures, which is always done in like micro units, basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. It would be like, me <laughs> oh, it's getting out of hand. Um, yeah. I don't know how I would calibrate it as a unit, units of suckage, but, um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for joining us for our text discussion. Tune in next time when Into the Breach comes, who do you think, right? Gandalf is beating around the bush and trying to build this up for them. Merry is telling him to cut to the chase. Gimli, smoldering fire. Aragorn, dark and hopeless. Come rescue us, Boromir. You're our only hope, right? Let us see what the tactful and politic Boromir has to say about this situation. Bill the Pony has something to add, too, but um, it wasn't fit for print, I think. Um, anyway, so tune in next time when we get Boromir's... Boromir doesn't usually give his two cents. Boromir's usually worth about eight cents, at least. So we're going to get eight or nine cents uh, from, uh, uh, from Boromir next time. All right. Um, it's field trip time. Thanks for joining us. I should be should be back again next week, so far as I know. Um, should get a couple weeks in a row here, um, all the way down through Mythmoot, actually. Uh, this is the only broadcast that will not be disrupted by uh, Mythmoot. So, well, I actually can't promise that 100%. Um, <laughs> let me not be too rash. But anyway, but let's do, um, let's do our field trip. How are you doing, Valori? I'm doing fine. Yeah, no, I was just uh, I was scanning some uh, ideas for what Elvish for suckage would be. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, sort of have a rough idea of like loveliness or horribleness, something with a foo in front of it. Elvish scholars, you, you can weigh in on the side. Yeah, but it, I agree that in order to really capture it, it would have to be there. Would have to be a, 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 a an element of crudeness that would be hard to represent in Quenya. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely more first age. Um, I would almost want to. Here's what I would look for in a translation of suckage. I would look for a word that the elves bad use. Bad as it gets. Yeah, well, proper table manners. <laughs> no, like to describe like uh, the like the the badness that comes about as a consequence of Morgoth's action, not like his wicked choices and the actions that he, you know, that he himself performs, but like, um, things like, uh, plagues or, you know, um, Barrenness. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when, when just, when there is much like suffering and unhappiness in the land because something, Oh, uh, it's called hell correct. <laughs> oh, Caraxes, yeah, yeah. Well, not, not sorrow exactly. I mean, again, I'm not saying sorrow can't be involved, but um, um, uh, yeah, I agree that um, uh, Wobe, um, 
you could probably borrow some words from the black speech. I bet you it'd be easier to translate suckage into the black speech. Uh, or or but, some horrible uh, foes like Ungoliant or something. Right, right. I but bet, yeah, I, I mean, bet just, there's a I bet there's a foul word related to Ungoliant. Yeah, just the whole um just the whole uh um you know badness that um Morgoth brings about even when he's uh, you're not describing his wicked actions. Okay. Yeah, it's just something about what he left behind after he destroyed Yvonne Right. Right. Okay, um we're back again. Um we're going to we're headed back to um uh, Scar, 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 Scarlock. I was say Scarlock, which is just not the right Scarlock Farm again. Um, we're going to continue Scarlock Farm. We're going to continue. Um, uh, yeah, continue looking around. Yeah, yeah, Elvish does seem pretty slim on curse words. Um, there just there aren't that many Quenya words that feel like they would be satisfying to say when you stubbed your toe. That's, you know, like... If they were, Feanor invented them. Yeah. Possibly. Possibly. Um, Father of language? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, written um, language. You have to draw you... something on the walls of the restrooms in Tuna. Yeah. Um... Treebeard would know. Could you imagine how long it would take Treebeard to cuss if he stubbed his toe, right? Um, but um, five years. Yeah, easily, easily. Um, okay, all right. So. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Map. Okay. So Map. we were. Where were we? Um, we went last time. We crossed over. We went to Haldnirui and we went north. So we. Uh, and that's vaguely where I wanted to go again. Okay, so let's All right. let's head up there, and then we'll continue around clockwise from there. We don't have to go through how near we again because we've been through it a couple times, and I'm just gonna uh, continue to freak out about those asymmetrical tombs if we go back again. Um, yeah. I like Alamir's suggestion that Feanor is the curse word. <laughs> oh, you just know some alpha sitting around going, it's like, oh man, if they feed us this one more time, I'm going to pull a Feanor. Right. Yeah. No, just using it as an epithet, you know. Yeah. Um. Pulling a Homer or going turbo. Going <laughs> Feanor. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, I think it is in part the um, how uh, unsuitable um, Elvish languages feel like they would be for yeah. serious cussing is, I think, a, a, a reflection of, you know, Tolkien's own phonoesthetic sense. Like, yeah. Well, you know. maybe they have uh, Manish uh, loan words for that purpose. <laughs> right. Manish or, or Orcish loan words, yeah. It must be a very frustrating life not to be able to vent when you really need to. It's something really awful. Yeah, well, I uh, I don't the think they do it in the same way. Leading contribution to the sickly folk to Elvish society. 
Whoa, look at this guy. That's, uh... Stands the test of ages in physics. Yes. Yeah, no, that's right. You were, we, this, we, this is the one that we saw in the second week that you weren't there. Oh, um, gosh darn it. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we started last week with you up at the burned up at the, this tower up on the hill, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Worth and then that. we were looking around from here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh well, at least I got to see it. Yeah. Um. Okay. So we head up to. Where are we going from here? We're going. We're so we're gonna head. Uh, I'm, so this is where we went up to the top of this hill to look over into the Lone Lands last time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where we ended up. So I wanted to go like around where we ended up, and then head off towards the east because we saw some more ruins. East. And I'm wanting to look at sort of the patterns of ruins here. Okay. So we're scattered pretty well. Okay, yeah, we're pretty well up here. Okay. I'm going to go to just slightly higher ground and do a little sweep for... Is it dawn or... It is dawn. Great. Excellent. Best case scenario. Best case scenario with you. Aha! I knew there were more ruins. Okay, no, those are Lone Land ruins over there. Over the hill, right? Yes, I'm looking uh, into the lowlands. Those are lowlands ruins. Um, yes, so that's the ruin we were looking. We're just about up to break, right, just over that crest of the hill is where we were looking last time. So those are the ruins I was looking at. Yes, okay. And right down there we see the Harleweg, the the whatever it's called. The what is the swamp? The lowland swamp. Harleg. Harleg. Har- yeah, uh, yeah Harleg. Harleg. Yeah. So there's the Harleg down oh, there, there, which means again, so kind of sort of triangulating here. If I'm recalling correctly, the ruins in the Harloig were um, Arthodinian ruins. I think. Yes. Which means that we're coming, we're getting close to a frontier here. Yeah. It's the edge of Rudar's stuff. Yeah. And, and of, and of, uh, of um, Arthodine as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here we have, oh, look, this is a hunting lodge. Yeah, this is one of the hunting uh-huh. lodges. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, just like we saw on the road. Yeah. This one got fire damage. Not a. T- oh yeah, look at this. This is a great view. Oh. Of the Har- of the Harlowag. Yeah, so there's the right the haunted stuff with oh, all the. Wow. I've never seen it from this side. No. That is so cool. Oh yeah, we never could. So yeah, down in like that maze of ruins where we met all the ghosts and where we. Um, this is where we meet the Oathbreakers who were doomed by Tom Bombadil. Face the Red Maid. No, the Red Maid's across the road. But uh, but yeah, it was, you know, these are like Red Maid adjacent. Um, oh, yeah, it was an instance. Supporting yeah. Yeah, this is like down, like over in the woods on the far side of the ruins is where all those trolls are and stuff. Mm-hmm. And what's that I see on a hill on the far side, an elvish tower that's over in... Um, all the way to the troll shaws, isn't it? That's the angle of Mithithel. That's oh, what yeah, I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the angle of Mithithel, yeah. Just when I was thinking across the river that's right on the other side of that swamp. Yeah. Oh, we can see that far now. It really does feel like we can just see across kingdoms. Yeah, which we kind of are right now. So this is so this on the hill right behind us, 
Uh, definitely first era. And it looks like it was not rebuilt. I don't see any evidence of like uh, cartilagin towers or anything. This doesn't look like it was really reclaimed during the peak cartilage period, was it? Oh, no, no, no. I'm wrong. There's one right there. There's one right there. Uh, it's yeah. covered over with like ivy there, but there's a tower right there. Okay, so it was. So this was a hall that was reclaimed, but this is not a. This is not a. This is not a defensive fortification right here. No. So like somebody came and lived here. Presume I would guess during the early stages of the second age of Cardolan, um, mm -hmm. uh, this the second epic of Cardolan, but um, but was probably abandoned when the war really you know, got hot because it's pretty vulnerable here. Um, yeah, this whole area, yeah. Yeah, and we can, well, can we, can we? And Yeah, and the settlement below is definitely that, uh, something to be reckoned with. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, and that was, um, uh, that, that, that's Weathertop straight off to the, like to the northwest right there. Um, yep. We're seeing in the distance there. That's Weathertop. Yep, yep, very good. Um, Okay, so yeah, now that what we're seeing the big one up on the hill close by, that's how nearly that's the tomb up there. That's oh, really interesting. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, the tomb up on the rocky hill. Um, what I find interesting about that is that up here on the Cardolan side, which is highlands, right? So on the one hand, yeah, that Arthedanian ruin down there in the swamp is was pretty imposing, like that was clearly a fairly major city. Um, but um, uh, but at the same time, it's way down in the valley. Like you've got the advantage of being on the heights, right? So if you're gonna, yeah. you just build some forts up here, you'll be, you know, you, you should be fine. You've got all the tactical advantage of the high high ground up here, very high. You know, like they're way down in the, or like down a cliff from you here. Um, yeah. And yet we don't see it. All we see is that one again that that uh, that hunting lodge. And then the big thing that's dominating the landscape all around here is uh, this tomb. The tomb. Yeah, there's a tomb, mm -hmm. which Again, already, there's their priorities. Yeah, kind of tells you like, um, what's wrong with Cardolan? Yeah, well, this is what's what's wrong with Cardolan. So this is just yeah, this is the back entrance. There's the blasted out hole, right, that we came out of. So yep. Okay, so we know just. It's in the merry vein of tell us everything that's bad's going to happen, and we'll just make our graves now. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, but again, we've seen. So one of the things that I am finding most interesting, just from our like architectural survey, um, mm -hmm. can we get up there? I want to see what's on these rocks because, again, this is um, uh, this is a very. Uh, like Advantageous so, yeah. Like from a geological standpoint, this is a this is an important spot here. Um, oh, we can try and see if we flip the reality. I don't know that we can. I'm just. Oh, there's a bird up here. So something's meant to be up here. Okay. Just kind of going around to see if there's another approach. Yeah. To a ruin. Um, I don't see anything up there. Uh, oh man. Uh. I made nope. it. Oh, you made There's it. Trees up here and rocks. Okay, so oh, no, okay. no ruins of any kind. Unfortunately, not. Just a couple of bandits. Interesting. A couple of bandits. Yeah, it's. Oh, yeah, I think I found a. I, I think, think I found the bandits a are stuck up here. There we go. Oh no, the other side is much easier incline. I took the hard road. 
Yes, you all did. Well, it's all the more satisfying now. I was just circling around to see if there was a road or anything. Okay. It's got a nice view, though. It's a really nice view. It's ex- it's accessible. Like it's it's a height that you could get up to. You totally could have built a tower up here, but good grief! All the way practically to Rivendell from here. Huh. Yep. You can see there's what? the Elf Towers over there in the angle. There's the Rudarin City over there. Yeah. So we can see. Hang on. Let me get one of these other rocks. Maybe it just wasn't sturdy or stable enough to build something here. Yeah, so from from here we can see... For miles. Yeah, long ways. We can see down to the Arthedanian ruins. We can see over to the Rudaran ruins. And the Elvish ruins. And now, and the Cardolan ruins around here. Mm-hmm. We're getting the whole... see weather top too. Whoa. What is that? To the southeast, on top of that plateau. What am I looking at there? Over in the Trollshaws. Oh, that's the Rudawan uh, city, isn't it? Is that? Um, yeah, the one. There's the ranger camp down there. Yeah, the one that's uh, Thelgarth. Yeah, the big yeah. Rudawan city on the yeah with the yeah, yeah. So you got the the rangers down by the river at the foot of it, right? And yeah. then up, up on top. Yeah. Yeah, that the big Rudarin city there. And then there's Gwingaris, right? But that's, mm-hmm. I think, on the other side of that. So we can't see it quite from here. Yeah, but you can see the river leading to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the blue and on. Yeah. If you're looking southeast, you're looking across the, the Horwell into yep. Eregion. Yep. Yeah, so those hills that we can see there off to the south are are definitely a Regian. Um, yeah, I feel like th- this is like um, people who live in really big states won't be familiar with this sort of thing. But like, uh, you know, one of those spots that you get to like a four state view, like climb the, you know, pay two bucks to climb this tower and see four states at once. Like, you know, I, you'd see those sometimes in junctions of southern states. I can think of what there's one like near Greenfield, Massachusetts. Um, but yeah, because we can see, we can see, um, you know, obviously Cardolan. We can see into Eregion, uh, Trollshaws, uh, Lone Lands, obviously, all the way into the yeah. North Downs almost. Not quite. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, but it's Weather uh, Hills. Weather Hills, yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's intense. And uh-huh. yet again. Yeah. What don't we get? A city? A tower? Yeah, Anything well, the, up here? The Tower of Amansul would be the one commanding the biggest view, wouldn't it? Oh, it would from there, for sure. It's, yeah, I mean, you can tell it's taller than here from here. Which, again, but leads yeah. me to leads me to think that, um, sort of strategically speaking, um, the, the Cardolingians perhaps kind of like put all of their strategic eggs into the Amansul basket. You know, like they didn't, they could have, had they, um, had they kind of given up in a sense on, um, like they weren't winning. Um, like they yeah. did not control Amansul. In fact, they wanted to, but they didn't. Um, and failing to control Amansul, 
they didn't even build their own. Like they could have built their own little weather top over here. Like that would that that would have been a pretty good hill for a weather top. You know, the yeah. the hill that that uh, tomb is on would have been a pretty good hill for their own little Carolingian weather top. Um, Maybe this is next on the planning board. Yeah, but the planning board did not get around to it in time. Um, well, uh, the other obvious solution is that that rock is haunted. Possible. Can't rule it out, I suppose. Speaking of haunted, what do we have here? I'm on Firn is what we have here, and I think we're not going to have time to look at it in great detail. But what are we seeing? We are seeing this looks second era, much newer with that green stone oh, yeah. line. Um, really brown. Not Just a lot of other markers, though. Huge tower? Is that what we're seeing here in this thing? Yeah, or a rotunda. Just, yeah, some kind of rotunda thing. This is very... Um, how perfect is its roundness? Um, yeah. I um, think it has sunken into the ground somewhat, though. Yeah, I think it is sunken into the ground. Yeah. And then this is a fact, I... graveyard? Over here? Uh, graveyard. Yeah, it sure looks like it. I mean, so the obelisk cool. in the center at the top looks tomb-ish, especially since that's the same as the obelisk we saw in the middle of that old burial ground. Yeah, this one looks like a newer one. Man, yeah. this looks like that famous one in, in Poland that was made, like they made a mountain out of just burying the dead from a big battle, and as they went, they just, you know, the, the mountain got higher and higher. Okay, so we have an, a series of open platforms with pillars around so maybe there were maybe there was like a domed ceiling above it each one but we have these they're just platforms there are no walls they're not gazebos even exactly but these platforms with flights of stairs in between leading up to um look at this a whole Giant ring of pillars complex. around this yeah. heap of rough stones except it's got What's this? Dead Mount Shade. Yeah, it's got a... What the heck happened here? How did this rock all get stacked up on top of this other platform? Okay, so this rough stone wasn't here, I guess. Maybe something collapsed. Yeah, I agree, Nancy. The um, circumstantial evidence of the uh, fell spirits floating around here does suggest we've got some... Uh, and then ghosts does seem like we've got some dead, some tomb issues going on here. Um, and floating rocks. And who? There, there's definitely a floating rock here. And I, I would have to take it out of character and context because there's no physical way this thing is standing floating up. Floating rock. Yeah, well, there you go. I said haunted. Oh, I, am I stuck down here? I really hope I'm not stuck down here. Yeah, this this is definitely a platform here. Yeah, there there's a go. platform under all this stone. But how is that possible? Oh. Is it a cairn of some kind? You, really like, big cairn? These are really big rocks, though. They I, I built the obelisk, right? On top of it. The obelisk has a name on it. Dead Mount Obelisk. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm going to say great burial mound for the dead of probably a particularly awful battle or plague. Oh, there's a deed called the Ravaging of Cardolan. 
Oh. So if you can manage to get up to the obelisk, you can right-click on it and get the... Wow. Yeah, yeah. all right. So if we look down, there's a foundation. Make it easy on you. The obelisk is on a plinth, which extends down like this right here, straight in front of me, is the face of the stone beneath. So yeah, it was all... Um, yes, there's the Dead Mount Obelisk. Look at that. Geez, some of these rocks aren't real. Stupid haunted rocks. These are haunted rocks. I'm standing. Look, I mean, look at me. Like I'm currently standing two feet above the ground. Like there is something not right about these rocks. So it's me and my horse. Dead Mount Obelisk. Um, they're spiritual boulders, JJ. There you go. We found them. Um, <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> yes, we're climbing on the spiritual boulders even now. Um, so. My theory is this obelisk was built here, and yes, it does look exactly like the ancient burial ground that we saw with an obelisk just like this in the middle of it. Except this one is built on this large plinth thing, which then has the boulders, both physical and spiritual, piled up around it. On top, so so they first built. I think this has to have been built by the Arnorians, because we see, um, we can see the platform down at the bottom down there. Like down where, uh, what was it? Uh, Grib is standing on his horse down there. Um, you can see that there was a big old platform, and in the middle of the platform is this huge plinth upon which the obelisk stands. Like a big old spike stand, and then on top of the platform and around the plinth, get piled all these boulders, for reasons best known to whoever piled these up after it was built. Mm. And around Symbolic? it, yeah, I don't even know. Around it was well, okay, no, not just a ring of columns, but a whole structure. We've got a whole little wall and colonnade there. Yeah. It's the upward pointed cartilaginous star, and then down over here. Yeah, Wait. there's several walls that have just blown out and fallen down. I don't think these rocks were put here on purpose by anyone. Huh, maybe. Yeah, because then, like over here, down here on the southern side, we've got um, a genuine structure. Yep. But the over there, we got a couple of walls on their side flipped over. Huh. So you think this place blew up? Uh, yeah. I mean, like from the top. To, yeah, look at this wall down here. That is that is not a that, that is, is not on purpose. That is weird. That might have been an earthquake yeah. or something. Earthquake, rock slide. Um, Mines come down. Paranormal like, activity. Yeah, you just. Jorthkin. Yeah. Oh, oh, like yeah, like that. That goes back to the the poltergeist thing, where it just eats itself in the end. Yeah. Okay, so this was this place was a legitimate thing, like this was a an actual structure. The rest of it just looked like ceremonial sites, like outdoor sites. This uh, it looks a like a place you'd have altars where you'd offer offerings. Very possibly. Certainly, this whole 
um, hill here has that sense yeah. of um, uh, uh, the the whole hill has a sense of um, ritual about it of uh, ceremony like that's what it, that's what those um, other platforms on the far side of the hill look like you know they mm-hmm. look like um, they look like places where you like you go up the hill to have a ritual yeah, like burn an animal or offer incense or something. Yeah, you know, like there would be a, a you know, a, a day of the year where you like sacrifice a bull on each like platform and then get up to the top and do the big ceremony up, up at the top. Um, yep. Yeah, Tiwakan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Weird. Weird. Um, Okay, here's what's especially interesting about that weirdness. All of the evidence, um, all of the evidence of this site suggests that this is all old stuff. This is all first epic Arnurian stuff, not second epic Cartilingian stuff, which suggests to me that the Arnurians who lived down here, who became the Cartilingians, were pretty whacked from the very beginning. Yeah. I think it's just... So, like, one of the biggest conclusions I'm coming to in exploring Cardolan is that, like, those folks, they they just weren't right. Like, they were not yeah. right. Like, the living envied the dead. Yeah. There is this, like, whole necrophiliac subtext of yeah. the entire culture. And I don't mean in a literal and sexual way. I just mean a fixation I'm sorry, on I'm death. Sorry, I'm sorry. I need your reaction. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Um, yeah. No, do you see what I mean, though? I mean, like, everything oh, yeah. that we've seen from the beginning all the way through suggests that, you know, like, maybe there weren't sacrificial rituals to the dead here, but it kind of, you know, certainly sort of looks like it. And... <laughs> Yeah, we haven't seen anything that indicate there wouldn't be. No, and then you know, like all the stuff, the sketchy stuff we were seeing in Tirn Gorthod with all of those, like ancient, um, um, you know, standing stones, uh, like Barrow Downs esque standing stones, and then the Cartilingians being like, "Yeah, let's like live right among them. This is just where we like to be." Um, yeah. And yeah, um, yeah, I mean, there were some like uh, Gyrvarad down in the extreme. Which we saw right after from Sarnford. Remember that was the big one, the one that looks a little bit like the tower on the pictures, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, is the one that seemed to me sort of least sketchy uh, as far as the whole like necrophiliac angle is concerned. Um, mm-hmm. But most of the rest of it has just been like even in Karanost, it was like. It was it was a little bit okay in Karanast. Some parts of it looked kind of nice, but um, but yeah, this has been you know we get to how nearly the the tomb on the hill and now this other sketchy thing. I don't know. It's um yeah, no, but it ties in with my theories about Numenor. These people were obsessed with the old days and the yeah. forefathers and yeah. Numenor and going back to them. Yep. Possibly like Numenor was like now sort of a fictional heaven for them. 
Well, that and that didn't exist, or maybe only exist in legend, or exist in celestial legend, or something like that. Like yeah. they were so obsessed with the old yeah. forefathers, they just started to relate to them way too much. Yeah, and the whole like, uh, 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 you know, death, like necro fixation in Numenor. Um, you know, got kind of distilled down here. <laughs> necromania, love it, love it. Yes, the necromania of Numenor gets just. I mean, we haven't seen that now. Like we we get the really really grand tombs in Numenus, right? So there are some ways mm-hmm. in which you could say in Numenus already, the fact that the tombs are so huge in Numenus is already like not a great look. Bigger than bigger than that houses. Yeah, exactly. So that's a that's not a great sign. But in the rest of of um, Arthodyne, like in the rest of 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 uh, um, even Dim, we don't get a clear. We're seeing mostly like country estates. We're not seeing like, oh look, an ancient burial ground. Let's live here. Like that's that's. Whereas that we're getting that all over the place here in Cardolan. Yeah, it's very Army of Darkness vibes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So this was Amon Fern, and next time we will. I think we've got one or maybe two more days from Skirlock Farm. Skirlock Farm is just such a convenient central location here for the whole eastern half of Cardolan. Um, we'll go back to Skirlock Farm and then head south to Nimbarth, uh, continuing okay. our um, our circular move here, and then down into Sedgemead, and then down towards Tharbad. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. Very cool. And then who knows? Maybe we'll be ready to uh, go back to Eregion at that point. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, we're late, but uh, thanks, everybody. Appreciate um, uh, appreciate you joining me. This was a fun, if slightly creepy. Um, uh, but we, we should have waited for, like, Halloween to explore Cardolan. But um, <laughs> anyway. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I will... We will talk to you guys next week. Bye now. Bye. Okay. What we're going to be doing at Mythmoot? Yes. So, um, at Mythmoot, I want to...